Scott Horton Comedy. That's right, I'm doing an event with Robbie the Fire Bernstein here in Austin on the 5th of November as part of Robbie's Porch Tour. It's kind of an audition, actually. I'm trying to get the job to replace Dave Smith as Rob's sidekick. So show up and pretend to laugh at my awesome, hilarious comedy jokes. Robbie and another dude are also doing stand-up. Then Robbie and I are going to do a live podcast about libertarian themes and Star Wars and things. That's November the 5th. Go to thefiretix.com to find out all about it. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey guys, check it out. On the line, I've got Patrick McFarlane and he is the, get this, Justin Ramondo fellow at the Libertarian Institute. And, you know, he uh, was the host of this show, Liberty Weekly, that we host at the Libertarian Institute. But he changed it. It's now called Vital Descent. At the end of history, hey, shout out to Fukuyama there. I was harassing him for killing a bunch of Iraqis recently uh, on the Twitter there before I quit. He deserves it. Uh, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Patrick? Hey, doing good, Scott. Thanks for having me on. I've had you on before, right? Yeah, yep. Okay, I thought so. Hey, um, so listen, really great article here at antiwar.com. No, it was at the Institute, republished at antiwar.com. Same difference. It's time to cut Zelensky and Ing Wen from the U.S. dole. So, um, well, let's just start with the start. As it pertains to the American public, Ukraine's response to the Russian invasion can be summed up with two words. Quote, Zelensky demands. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I, I, throughout this whole thing, it's really just been, you know, Zelensky banging the gavels for everyone, all the support that he can get, which... I guess on some level I, I can understand is the leader of a country that's being invaded. But there's even been a feeling in some of the latest push that Zelensky has had, uh, some self-conscious self-reflection by the Ukrainians that, hey, maybe we shouldn't come across as appearing ungrateful for all of this help. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the latest, I, and they keep doing this, him and his Deputies keep saying that it's time for America to bomb Moscow. I'm paraphrasing loosely, but that, you know, one of them said, um, I think it was the deputy said, if they even think about nuking Ukraine, the Americans should nuke them first. And then uh, Zelensky was saying, I think yesterday, whatever they do to Ukraine, America should, and the West, I guess he said the world, should threaten to do to Russia and all this. Like, again... Hey, I understand your perspective on that, but you might pipe down a little bit. In fact, it would be reasonable for that to be the price of all this American support that you at least shut up with all of that loud talking. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Not that I'm for any of the weapons at all, but I'm just saying it's pretty crazy to like think of a guy like that digging your grave for you. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, of course. Yeah. And although, I mean, 
I, you, you could talk a little bit, and it doesn't really matter, but all this stuff about Zelensky being a comedian and all of his outrageous sketches from beforehand, and it really is just a cartoon world that we're living in, seems like. Yeah. Um, well, he, I guess, looks good in a T-shirt if you're a chick or something. I don't know. Seems to work with the CNN ladies. Yeah, um, and all, all of the uh, the Hollywood actors and, and like Ben Stiller and all these people who have had this revolving door with Zelensky after the conflict started. But it, when it comes to this article, I mean, what I really was trying to do was try to I, – I mean, I'm, I'm more conservative and so I can speak the language. And uh, I mean, this is obviously – this is something that I believe myself. But I really tried to resonate with the people in this country who – some of the populist conservatives who – they frame things in terms of like the elites and the establishment Democrats spending us into oblivion and risking nuclear war. And I, and I really tried to hold the mirror up to that kind of rhetoric to try to tell populist conservatives that, hey, look, I mean, the same thing is going on with uh, Tsai Ing-wen over Taiwan. And it's you should oppose that for the same reasons that you correctly, at least in rhetoric, oppose uh, all this aid to Ukraine. Yeah, well, so... And look, I mean, not to pick on Zelensky either, because what he's just a politician, and it's true that it didn't like he invaded Russia, although not that he was making peace with the people in the east of his own country at the time, like he was supposed to, like he ran on. But uh, it, he is the president of the country that's been invaded here, so you know, screw Russia. It's not like I'm taking their side or whatever. But at the same time, nobody's asking America to support Russia in the war. We're not paying their bills and we're not responsible for whatever sins that they're committing in the same way. So that's what the difference is. You know, it's not a matter of good and evil. It's a matter of whose side is America on. And as you put it, what's good for America's national interest here rather than, for example, the emotions of the anchors on CNN. Yeah. And I, I think it's important to make that distinction because as we see all of the rhetoric ramping up and it's happened, I mean, since February, since before then, really. And and just to be careful with words because, you know, we're going into this situation where we're progressing into a, a real war footing in this country. And I think that speaking out against this conflict is going to go beyond just, you know, people calling you a Putin apologist. Yeah. Um you know, I think there is kind of a a deal where the last time Americans saw real war in terms of between states where you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people dying by the day, by the week, that kind of thing, it's been a few generations and people just don't remember and it's all just seems like kind of a movie and that whatever's at risk, you know, I don't know, it couldn't get that bad. Whereas on the other hand, yeah, it really could. And especially, you know, I just read this thing by Lyle Goldstein all about how, look, it's true that the Russian conventional forces are pretty weak, weaker than a lot of people thought that they were. But you got to understand that that just makes them more dependent on their nuclear weapons if it comes down to it. And the Americans just like to brag and boast and they don't like to think about the other side's point of view about stuff like this. And so then what do they have? Right? They put more and more into their hypersonic gliders and their nuclear torpedoes and all that because ultimately those are more cost-effective than new tank divisions, apparently. 
that's their calculation. So, but that's the Americans are helping put them in that situation where that's what they're calculating. You know? Well, I think the interesting thing that we see too in, in regards to that is the return of the domino theory. And I know you've talked about this with, with guests recently, but I started a TikTok channel, which I, you know, trying to reach some of the younger people who are going to be cannon fodder if this were to go to some kind of global conflict. But a lot of the comments that I've gotten back have just been the return of this domino theory. And it seems like you're in this, you know, Schrodinger's Russia, where it's like we're, we're stuck in this conflict where Russia's at the same time this huge threat to Europe, but at the same time can't even swallow the Ukrainian military. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sort of just like where entertainment news is easier. Hitler analogies are easier than actually knowing what you're talking about. And everybody knows that the worst mistake anyone ever did was not invade Germany in 1933 as soon as that guy took power. And everything that they did to negotiate before the total war was all the giant mistake of appeasement. And you can never do that again. And it doesn't matter if the analogy doesn't hold. I mean, take a look at Vladimir Putin. He's a lot more like Hindenburg than Hitler. You could imagine somebody being far to his right, seizing power in that country, maybe someday soon, you know? But, uh, and this whole idea that, oh yeah, no, yeah, now he's just biting off a piece of Ukraine. Next, he's going to march into Warsaw and then Berlin and all this. Come on. As you say, domino theory. It's not, see, the domino theory that brings up Asians in a way that, like, makes it somehow a different argument. I don't know. Communism in Asia versus fascism in Europe. But um, the thing is, the analogy just does not hold. But it's easy, especially for TikTok. You know, come on, what are you, stupid? Everybody knows that you can't appease Hitler. And then time's up for your video, so that makes sense. You know, that fits. Yeah, and for me especially, I, I guess, you know, the, the whole TikTok thing has been useful because it's been training me to be more succinct or to at least take on the challenge of addressing these complicated, complex topics in the span of a minute or something like that. But, yeah, yeah. I, and so in, in this way... The article, like what I tried to do as well was to identify these two key figures, right? Bob Menendez and Lindsey Graham as being on the tip of the sphere, the spear for both the Ukraine situation and the Taiwan situation. Yeah, and, and both of them notorious hawks for generation now. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and it's this Taiwan Policy Act that is is the biggest like in, in my articles, you know, I've, I've tried over the years to, well, especially the last couple months to be a bit more persuasive. And I think part of that is to give someone an, identifal, an, an identifiable action item. And one of the actions that I give to these populist conservative is you have to oppose the Taiwan Policy Act in all its forms. You know, um, Rand Paul is getting it right. And he's one of the, one of the Republicans who are opposing all of this aid to Ukraine. And he gets this right. And there's all this backdoor stuff about they're taking the Taiwan Policy Act and trying to sneak it in through uh, the NDAA that's coming up here. Uh, but in that, you get rid of a lot of the most confrontational diplomatic language about designating Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally um, and, and kind of eschewing, I mean, 
in 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 actual policy issuing the the one china principle right and but when you sneak it in through the ndaa you get you, you get rid of all that bad diplomatic language but you have to double the amount of direct military support in yeah. order to- yeah i mean to think that they can just change the policy that simply from one China to, oh yeah, no, one China, but except that Taiwan is a major non-NATO ally, like say Australia <laughs> or something like that, really? Uh, like Japan? Um, that doesn't sound like a one China policy at all anymore. That sounds like an earthquake. And yet it just sounds, you know, you're setting up nuclear war, but just burying it in bureaucratic sounding language. It's not even interesting. Oh, did you hear today they passed the boring old something act and you know what i mean yeah and it'd be nice if they could have like made the distinction i mean for for china watchers out there it's like well in 1979 we had the taiwan relations act but now the new turn is the taiwan policy act so i mean even i get them confused just you know when talking on shows and stuff yeah wow um and then so uh now, what all uh, weapons and and things are in it? Do you know? Well, the it, it was a little unclear because for a while they had proposed it, um, at least as an addition to the NDAA. But it it does include ten ten billion dollars in military aid for Taiwan. It would be given to Taiwan over five years in the form of the foreign military financing, which is a State Department program that gives foreign governments money to purchase U.S. weapons. However. 300 million of the foreign uh, military financing can be used each year to purchase military equipment from Taiwan's own industrial base. And the only, the only other country that has that privilege in, in U.S. relations is Israel. And, and of course, I'm, I'm quoting here from the great David Camp at antiwar.com. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as we do. Well, um, all right. So, you know, by the way, there's a hell of a lot going on in uh, Chinese news here. Um, firstly, you know, you have the, uh, 20th communist party, what's it called? Uh, the party Congress and, uh, the new central committee is formed and all this. Have you been reading about that? Yeah, I I did as much as I could this weekend. Um, I rely on Peter Lee a lot for some of my, my China analysis. And there's, there's a lot of hay that's been made, especially, you know, we're talking about populist conservatives here. Um, they they oppose uh, escalation, at least in rhetoric, with with uh, in the Ukraine situation with Russia. But they're some of the biggest hawks on China, and the way it's been portrayed in kind of right wing media is that she has has become the dictator because it's unprecedented that he has had a third term. So now he's another Hitler, at least in the West or the East. Excuse me. Well, look, it's already a one-party dictatorship. Whether, I mean, talk about a distinction without a difference. I mean, I get it, though, that it's important that he pushed out all the other guys and put all his loyalists in charge and all that kind of thing. They're, like, saying it was due to illness, but it seemed like a deliberate humiliation of his predecessor that he had him kind of dragged out of there, confused, wondering what was going on and all of that. Um, but... uh I don't know. I don't think that makes China necessarily more threatening. If anything, from what I've learned about it and, you know, all of his policies of his 14 points, 
where to get that stuff from. Um, that like really, he just wants to take more centralized control over the economy, which I guess in some ways has meant over the, in the past at least some pretty severe anti-corruption stuff. But otherwise, I mean, it doesn't matter corruption or not. Centralized planning is mostly. I mean, on some gigantic projects, I guess you're going to put up a dam or a highway or whatever. But um, for the most part, they just do nothing but misallocate resources. And then he wants to clamp down on all the ethnic minorities and force them to all become Han Chinese, which they all want to resist and all these things. Sounds like he really has his hands full. It doesn't sound to me like, you know, the more they centralize power in China the more of a threat they get to the outside world. That hasn't seemed to have been the case. Certainly the argument has been that, yeah, once the Maoist dictatorship failed and Deng Xiaoping and his guys came to power and um, decentralized power and allowed people to own property and companies and make money, that that's what made him powerful. So if she's going the other way, then... From even an imperial point of view, oh, good, they're digging their own grave, right? I yeah, mean, that... even look at what's going on with the lockdowns right now. And there's a whole narrative on the right wing that they tricked us. Those commie rat bastards tricked us into locking our country down and all this. But look at what they're doing right now. They believe in that stuff. Yeah. They lock yeah. people in their houses for months. And, and their, you know, growth rate is lower than it's been since I don't know when, but it's low. I mean, it's it's a totalitarian state. Well, totalitarianism doesn't work well in terms of production capacity and so forth. And I know that they're building up their navy, but they're not building up a global navy. They're building up a defensive one. And I'm not the expert, but Lyle Goldstein and them say you can tell by which ships they're building. It's not like they're building 22 aircraft carrier battle groups like we got. Yeah, and this has kind of been the... You know, of course, you have Navy officials from from the United States saying that the United States should prepare for the possibility of China invading Taiwan as soon as this year. And, and of course, we only have, what, two months left in this year. And, you know, anything could happen, I suppose. We kind of learned that with the, the Ukraine situation. But I would think that if, if China was preparing for what probably would be one of the largest amphibious invasions in world history, we might see it a bit more in, in some satellite images, although I think the most likely s situation is that you know, China has some kind of unconventional attack if, if they do move on Taiwan. But most likely I would see a, a blockade of the island. And, and we, we saw that in, in China's response to Nancy Pelosi's visit at the beginning of August. Yeah. Hey, guys, sorry, I don't mean to go all FDR on you or anything, but here's the new deal. All the interviews are now going up first at scotthortonshow.substack.com. Of course, they'll all be going up at scotthorton.org the next day, and the archives going back to 1999 will still be free for you there at scotthorton.org. But I got to generate revenue, you know. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things including the great Top Lobster's designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com.
You guys check it out. This is so cool. The great Mike Swanson's new book is finally out. He's been working on this thing for years. And I admit, I haven't read it yet. I'm going to get to it as soon as I can. But I know you guys are going to want to beat me to it. It's called Why the Vietnam War? Nuclear Bombs and Nation Building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 61. And as he explains on the back here, all of our popular culture and our retellings and our history and our movies are all about the height of the American war there in, say, 1964 through 1974. But how do we get there? Why is this all Harry Truman's fault? Find out in Why the Vietnam War by the great Mike Swanson. Available now. Um, well, he keeps coming up, so I'm going to have Lyle Goldstein on and ask him about, because I know he's up on the very latest of Chinese military deployments and interpreting them and all of that. Same with Russia. He came on the show and called the Ukrainian invasion right before it happened and all that. So, um, very reliable guy. Yeah. But uh, I think, I can't remember who it was that said that, you know, all they got to do is just put on a blockade. You don't even have to invade the place. Um, although they, if they did that, they'd be daring the Americans to break it with air power. You know, I don't know. But um, I don't know, man. I got to tell you, I'm not comforted having Joe Biden in charge. Not that I was with any of the presidents of my lifetime, frankly. <laughs> but he's really bad. And, um, well, like some of them, he's really stupid, especially in his old age. I mean, he never was that bright, but he's so doddering now. I can just see him being like, oh yeah, attack Taiwan. Oh wait, which one's Taiwan again? And just, you know what I mean? Just, he's out of it, dude. I, I think that was, you said in a recent show, I think it was last week, an interview where, you know, the prevailing narrative about. Joe Biden, at least on the right, is is that, well, he's weak. You know, if only Donald Trump were in office. And I think some people have said this, some commentators have said Donald Trump threatened to nuke Moscow and he threatened to nuke Beijing. And if he was only in office now, none of this would have happened because he would have laid down the threats early. But I, I think you, you had mentioned that the the inverse narrative about Joe Biden would work better and maybe it should work with the populace, right? Is that, well, this guy's senile. He's nuts. He's crazy. He's being incredibly reckless with all of his policy. And, and in fact, that's what the actual policy, if you actually look at the policy, that's what it demonstrates. Yeah. That hey, at least W. Bush had this coherent communist theory of global revolution that he inherited from his Trotskyite advisors. What's Biden doing? Stumbling around in the dark? Yeah. Yeah. Seriously, you tell them that I shook my cane in the air and hollered, <laughs> you know, I don't think that's a very good way to make foreign policy, dude. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And, you know, I really hope that this piece, I was really pleased by the way that it turned out and in the reception that it got. And I, I really hope that the, the parallels should should bear bear true. I mean, you you got a lot of the same stuff going on with the pre-Russian invasion of Ukraine. You got a lot of the same stuff going on in Taiwan. And and I tried to highlight a lot of this rhetoric that Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez had on the multiple occasions that they have personally visited Tsai Ing-wen. It may be two or three, I want to think. But they're there after the Russian invasion of Ukraine saying, you know, 
don't don't feel bad that we're focusing on Ukraine right now. We still have a lot of love for Taiwan. Don't think we forgot about you. And we know that the future is really here in the Indo-Pacific, right? This term that they've created to describe the South China Sea in a way that doesn't revolve around China. Mm-hmm. The whole thing is completely bananas. You know, it makes sense to try to provoke them if you have some weird conflict of interest. But I think if you just grabbed a guy off the street, you know, a sane one at random and put him in there, he'd go, well, look, we have this status quo that's held for 50 years. That, of course, it's one China, but geez, guys, don't fight. And let's just leave it at that. Why would we not leave it at that? And then, of course, they'll say, especially if the war does break out, they'll go, see, that's why we had to intervene so much on Taiwan's side before and after is because of this Chinese aggression. And I get it that if it's just antiwar.com saying it, that's one thing, but it's really no different than what George Kennan said about provoking the Russians in Eastern Europe, that there's no need to expand NATO. And if we do, he said, this is what he told Thomas Friedman in the New York Times in 1998. If we do this, the Russians are going to react. And all the people now, all the people who are telling us now that it's no big deal, they'll be the ones then saying, see, that's why we have to do this, because that's just how the Russians are, and that we're the ones defending from Russian aggression when it's clear that they're the ones who provoked it. So here, instead of telling Taiwanese nationalists, hey, you guys should pipe down, and telling the Chinese, look, They're not going to declare independence or we're not making any promises to them that might provoke them into doing so. You can rest assured about that and let the status quo be the status quo. It's held for 50 years, might not hold forever. But then again, you know, look at the map. Is Taiwan really more part of America than it is part of China? We're going to go to nuclear war for that. And again, You get into a major war with China, just like with Russia, that's going to go nuclear very quickly. And when you're talking about ships full of sailors going down to the bottom of the ocean, you're talking about emotions running hot as hell in every capital around the world. So... Yeah, well, when it comes to this, you know, the populist right, getting Ukraine more correct than others, it, it really trying to pivot and and tell them why the same reason they should oppose escalations with China, you'll get a a few things differently, right? They'll say that, well, fighting a war against Russia over Ukraine is not in the U.S. interest, but confronting China in the Indo-Pacific is in U.S. interest. And you'll get some other things about how, well, no one's No one's advocating that we go to war with China. It's just that we need to confront them. And selling Taiwan weapons and making it into a porcupine is not confront, you know, it's not declaring war with China or advocating war with China. In fact, that is in the U.S. natural interest, national interest, because, you know, the the century, the next century, you know, China is going to rise and nothing will be able to stop them. Yeah. Um. Essentially, it makes sense from their point of view, and you know they really do believe their own BS, that, of course, whatever we do is defensive, and it's only to protect, and then, geez, you know, if we cause a problem for our enemy, then at least it'll be expensive for them. We'll get a boost in spending for our favorite weapons manufacturers who finance all the think tanks and all down the line. But, again, you know, 
not to excuse it, but you can blow up Iraqis and Afghans all day long, and the worst thing that they could do is motivate some Saudis into hijacking one of your planes against you or something. Pretty bad that one time, but compared to what a nuclear weapon state can do, um, but they treat, you know, as Daryl Cooper said, they talk about Putin like he's Omar Bakr al-Baghdadi, right? The leader of ISIS. The renowned, austere religious scholar, according to Joby Warwick in the Washington Post. Remember that? But they talk about Putin like he's no more legitimate a leader than Baghdadi was. And his, you know, pseudo-caliphate there in western Iraq and eastern Syria. And But that's probably not the easiest way to approach these issues. And same kind of thing here where they just... They act like they're playing chicken with somebody who really can knock their block off, you know? And in some way, maybe, I, I don't know, this is just speculation, but it, it seems like the ultimate aim is regime change in Moscow and in Beijing at the same time. And maybe giving Putin and giving Xi these situations where they, they're forced to act and they act and then fail is supposed to be some kind of a catalyst for doing that. And so uh, this pet theory I have about, you know, maybe the United States wants to entice Beijing to, to, to try to make a move on Taiwan. Um, but there's, there's a whole bunch of counterfactuals that go to that, too. But it's just my own pet speculation. All right. Tell us about Vital Dissent. Yeah, well, so I, I changed Liberty Weekly to Vital Dissent. And, and the reason why I did that is because there's a whole lot of people who could be uh, opposing this dangerous escalation, this new great power competition who maybe are turned off by the Liberty branding. And so my perspective isn't changing. Of course, you know, I'm, I'm the Justin Raimondo fellow at the Libertarian Institute. I am a libertarian. All those opinions and, and, and um, analysis isn't going to change. But I want to be more appealing to people who could be on our side who maybe aren't strictly pure anarcho-capitalists. Yeah, well, good. Um, that's always been my philosophy. It's the philosophy behind antiwar.com is to be, you know, as ecumenical as possible. As Eric likes to brag, we'll run Pat Buchanan and Daniel Ellsberg, not just on the same day, but right there next to each other. Famous nemeses from the Nixon era, right? But uh, if you're good on war and there's not too much global warming stuff in there, we'll run it. And so, uh, and and we're trying to speak to the whole country if we can so um and and frankly i think you know the institute we're all pretty hardcore libertarians but um i i think overall pretty much everybody's focus is on trying to reach the general public rather than um you know internal libertarian debates of which there are plenty and which are very important too i just think that's mostly not our bent at the institute um, we have a bit of that, but, um, so no, I think that's great. And so tell us what kind of topics you got in line, uh, and what kind of podcast is this going to be? Is this going to be sort of like a radio show type deal, or this is going to be one of those long form true crime deals? Yeah, well, I want to have the best of both worlds. Um, I'll still be doing, you know, key interviews with, with, um, experts as I identify or, or people that come on. I think, Generally, the topics are going to revolve around opposing grain power competition, but it's also going to focus on, you know, killing in war is another topic that I've covered in depth through the show, but also 
you know, state malfeasance, state and corporate malfeasance. Like um, I have a, and, and this will be part of the show too, ma- these major documentary, scripted documentary produced episodes that dive into certain topics. And one of the topics that I'm taking a look at is the plutonium injection experiments that happened as a parallel to the Manhattan Project where all these Manhattan Project scientists dosed up American citizens with plutonium, injected them without their knowledge or consent, caused um, who knows how much harm because these people just kind of, you know, they went their separate ways, these victims. Oh, man, why you got to bring up old shit? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's plenty of there's plenty of new stuff, but I I think, um, you know, all this goes a little bit of plutonium, man. Come on. Where we are today, yeah. No, it's crazy. It's like niacin, you need that stuff. It's in your Cheerios. Yeah, well, there's there was uh, there was this other experiment where they fed children like radioactive oatmeal. These orphans. Um, so there's a whole lot of really dark stuff to to be covered there, and so I want to shed some light on it. Yeah, man, that's great. And uh, you know. That was some of the things that formed uh, some of... Well, I was already like this since I was a little kid. Who are we kidding? But it was important stuff I paid attention to in the 1990s was uh, some stuff by Bill Curtis on investigative reports. I mean, a lot of this came out during the church committee hearings and the MKUltra and stuff, uh, Rockefeller committee hearings and all that. But um, the um, Bill Curtis on investigative reports on A&E had a whole thing about how they were deliberately poisoning the people of New York and San Francisco with germs in the light bulbs of the subways in New York and dumping a bunch of bacteria over San Francisco and uh, radiation experiments on people. And, of course, you know, the MKUltra LSD stuff and whatever. Um, It's pretty law-breaky type experimentation on Americans. Like, uh, you know, and this is... You know, the nth degree of all this, of course, is the torture state. Like Alfred McCoy shows how the Soviets, not like they needed that much help, but the Soviets and the Americans both imported Nazi torture techniques and then both brought them to Korea. (laughs) And we're like, this is how you do it. And copying each other. And then that was then what they based the SEER program on was the commie torture techniques in Korea that they already, you know, had in their manuals anyway, that then... Um, the later torture program was based in great part on that SEER techniques, the anti-torture resistance techniques. So this is how you do it then. And, but all that came through the commies and the Americans from the Nazis. So, yeah, when I think it's, it's really important to focus on this kind of stuff because the, if I could tie it back into the, the greater moment that we're in right now is this autocracies versus democracies kind of talk that's emerging from, from the blob. You know, this this idea that, you know, if a bunch of people get together and they say a thing should be a certain way, well, that's infinitely better than one party state or someone like Putin or Xi doing the same thing. Um, But we see that, you know, no matter what the system is, there's always these atrocities that are committed behind closed doors and even openly or across the world where the American people, you know, are too apathetic to really know about it. Yeah. Um. Man, there was that whole thing about the town in France where they gave them all acid and then they blamed it on the moldy bread or some kind of thing. And people went completely bananas. They like spiked their water well with it, uh, with acid or something. There's some really crazy ones. Yeah. The, or the, the, one of my 
things that I've looked into is the zinc cadmium sulfide aerosol dispersal experiments. I think it was in St. Louis and there were a bunch of cities in the U.S., um, you know, flyover country, kind of smaller, smaller metropolitan areas where they had huge blowers on the back of these uh, state Army Chemical Corps vehicles and they sprayed this biological tracer all through these cities. And there was there was a lawsuit that where people, you know, in inner city communities had been getting cancer at an unexplainable rate and they tried to sue. And of course, you you can't sue the U.S. government without its consent. So that was dismissed. Yeah. Even though that's right in the First Amendment, the right to petition for redress of grievances, but they just changed the meaning of the word petition from sue their sorry asses to sign your name on a little piece of paper begging. <laughs> yep. Sovereign immunity. Yeah. Yeah, dude. All right. Well, I won't keep you any longer, man, but I appreciate you uh, writing for us and doing your great podcast. I look forward. Now, is Vital Descent already started? Yep. It's uh, vitaldescent.com. And you got your first show, I mean? Yeah, yep, yep, it's out. Okay, great. Well, we'll all be taking a look at that, vitaldescent.com. All right, well, thank you very much, Patrick. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Scott. All right, you guys, that's Patrick McFarlane. Of course, you can find his show also at the Libertarian Institute in the right-hand margin there. He's our Just Romando fellow, libertarianinstitute.org slash Patrick. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.